Inner Voice, a heartfelt chat with Dr. Fujian. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Inner Voice Show. I'm Dr. Fujian Zane. I'm a psychotherapist, author, and the originator of the Awareness Integration Theory. And hello to Sean, our director at the studio. This is a show about what matters most in our life. Our minds, our thoughts, feelings, actions, relationships, and our fulfillment in this beautiful journey of life. In this show, I will share the tip of the week about the process of love and loss. Then I will share with you how to stop an unwanted habitual behavior in the Ask Me segment. Then I bring you the latest research about people who are grieving a major loss, such as a death of a spouse or a child use different coping mechanisms to carry on with their lives. They attempt to avoid subconsciously thinking about their loss. My guest today, I'm excited, is Christy Huckstadt. She's the author of Be You, Only Better, Real Life Self-Care for Young Adults and Everyone Else, and two other books. She is a certified grief recovery specialist and a grief and loss facilitator, facilitator for addicts in recovery. She is also the host of the Grief Girl podcast. She's amazing and I hope that you enjoy her story, her life story and um, everything that she's going to give us in her book. It's an amazing book. So, but first, here's the tip of the week. Dr. Fujian Zane, and this is the tip of the week. I was talking to my colleagues and clients and friends about love and loss, and it brought up a lot of interesting conversation that I want to share with you. I've experienced um, love and loss as the two sides of the same coin that moves along on a parallel process. Love in relationships comes along with a sense of attachment, which in turn has to face the possibility of loss at every moment. In a healthy relationship, one moves from one phase of the relationship to another. Each transition takes letting go of the last phase of the relationship, which feels like a loss. Letting go of singlehood toward gaining couplehood. The loss of honeymoon stage of, as one moves toward the next stage, could be even power struggle stage, or the loss of loverhood era to a parenthood era, letting go of being needed as a parent when children grow up, or all the different ways that one goes through the natural transition of life and experience love and loss. When we lose someone that we love, whether it's due to divorce, death, migration, or phase of life issues, we go through a deep grief each one of us goes through this type of a process of grief in our own unique way, depending on the style of our own attachment. Some get caught in denying and refusing to experience loss by acting as if nothing happened. For example, holding on to clothes or the room as it exactly was when the person left, whether they died or you know the children went to school, um, just keep it exactly the way it was, as if at any moment we walk into that room and they're still there. Some fight the loss and get angry at the person for leaving or dying or the doctors for letting this happen or for uh, somebody, somebody's friend or mother or somebody who took our lover away. 
Some bargain with many what ifs and hope to find the right scenario for the loss to go away and wake up from this bad dream to find the person again. Some go into despair and hopelessness and loss of their own identity. Some question the notion and the meaning of love and life while they face loss. I've noticed that as one reaches the sadness of compassion for the self, healing happens. The love that was geared toward being fulfilled from the outside comes from the inside toward the self. Completion with the relationship and the person so helps. Looking at what we learned from the relationship helps us with the completion and therefore letting go. Acceptance of loss as a natural part of life, as a natural growth of human beings, and as a natural phase of relationships will allow us to pass through these processes with grace. Allowing ourselves to accept loss as a natural ongoing phase will help us not get stuck in the denial or try to fight it. So as we anticipate loss, we can also engage fully in relationships in life when it's, when it's present fully in front of us. Some people, due to their original negative experiences of anxious attachment with their people, mother and father and their caregiver, experiencing extreme loss as a trauma when they were a child, or the pain of losing a loved one, and they generalize it, this experience and live with constant fear and pain of loss, as if they've just closed their heart and they're not going to go into any relationship or when they do, always standing there waiting for the other shoe to drop because they're gonna face loss. So they actually, they face loss every minute. So reparenting the self, healing or childhood traumas will help us unite our different parts and become whole. We can then cherish the feeling of love and experience in fully when it's present and grieve it appropriately when it's lost versus living in the loss every day. An expectation of the experience of love as a constant matter is kind of an illusion. Loss will be there no matter what. But generating love consistently, regardless of the loss for yourself, for, regardless of the loss for yourself and others will create full enjoyment and will pull, pull you through when you have to go through the loss. For more ways in healing yourself through the process, um, go to Life Reset, the awareness integration path to the life you want and um, allow yourself to learn how to regenerate love and how to go beyond loss, through loss and beyond loss and keep living in the love that you have and the shine that you have. Thank you. Dr. Fujian here and in the Ask Me segment. Thank you so much for sending your questions to me via Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, and uh, the last question that I have from you was, um, how do I let go of unwanted behavior or disruptive behavior, some bad habit that I have? Um, well, we could look at some of these bad habits could be under the name of addiction, for example, smoking cigarette or using alcohol or drugs, 
It could be just, you know, bad habits of eating or not taking care of yourself or any of those that you can imagine. Habits usually form because we're doing a behavior continuously. And um, obviously that behavior in some form started uh, giving us some pleasure. So uh, it had a function in our life. That's why we chose it, whether the function was creating comfort or joy or happiness or alleviated some of the uncomfortableness or took away the emotions we didn't want or uh, created a drilling for us when we were doing it or, um, you know, definitely had a function. So as we're going through this conversation, please pick up a habit that you don't like and see when did it start and what was the point for it when it started? What were you gaining out of starting that habit and um, what happened that you decided to do it over and over and over again because when it's a habit that means it is continuous and how do we know that it's bad or that it's destructive when we no longer want it because when um, we are gaining some pleasure or comfort or the function side by side it seems like now we're getting consequences and maybe at the beginning the consequences were not as apparent to us so we just saw the benefits and we just continued with the benefits and somehow as we're continuing to do that the consequences are catching up and um, therefore we need to stop because now apparently the consequences are higher than the amount of pleasure that is there. So whatever reason we did this for, we might need to find a replacement for it a little bit healthier than what we're doing. So identifying why we're doing what we're doing, what does it fulfill in us is a very important factor. So begin journaling. One of the things you could do is every time during the day that you're gonna begin doing the habit you don't want, start writing it somewhere. What am I doing this for? What is it fulfilling right now? What is it uh, masking right now? What is it I don't want to feel and I'm doing this? What is it that I'm gaining? So write down all of those for yourself and start monitoring yourself for a while. You'll start getting the answers of, oh, that's why. And it might have a different function at different times. I remember when I was smoking a cigarette, sometimes it was because I wanted to calm myself, sometimes because I wanted energy, sometimes it was a transition between seeing clients and having, you know, another client, sometimes it was a rest, sometimes it was just pleasure, sometimes it was just because it's Monday, pretty much. And had and was just a habitual like every time I sat in a car, I had to smoke every time I had a drink, I had to smoke every time I finished um, you know, my food, I had to smoke. Every time I was talking to a friend, I had to smoke. So it was just really finding out which one of it was just habitual because I had done it so much that it got associated with something, another behavior. Or was it because I was dimming up emotion or wanting to produce an emotion. So as you begin writing those down, then you can see what type of uh, replacement I can create for the different areas of my needs that are a little bit more healthier than what I'm doing right now. And then so structure it that way. So in every aspect of it, structure another behavior and associate it and add it to, to the part so you could get fulfilled with it. There's no way of stopping something if you haven't started something else to replace it. So let's do that. So let's figure out a vision to replace it, okay? And then you can begin envisioning yourself in a new way of being. Whatever you imagine that it should be, imagine that. 
and see yourself in that light and move toward that and begin practicing that every day at the same time. So new habits will become part of you. And that's where you can shift the habit without making yourself wrong um, or assigning any negativity to yourself. Thank you for listening. the latest research. People who are grieving a major loss, such as a death of a spouse or a child, use different coping mechanisms to carry on with their lives. Psychologists have been able to track different approaches, which can reflect different clinical outcomes. One approach that is not usually successful is avoidant grief, a state in which people suffering from grief show marked effortful repeated and often unsuccessful attempts to stop themselves from thinking about their loss. While researchers have shown that avoidant grievers consciously monitor their external environment in order to avoid reminders of their loss, no one has yet been able to show whether these grievers also monitor their mental state unconsciously trying to block any thoughts of loss from rising to their conscious state. A new collaborative study between Columbia Engineering and Columbia University Irvine Medical Center, published online in the Social Cognitive and Affective Neuroscience Journal, demonstrates that avoidant grievers do unconsciously monitor and block the contents of their mind wandering. The researchers used a new approach to track the interactions between the mental processes. A machine learning approach to functional magnetic resonance imaging, FRI, called neural coding, which establishes a neural pattern or fingerprint that can be used to determine when a given mental process is happening. Findings show that avoidant grief involves attentional control to reduce the likelihood that, that disease-related representations reach full conscious awareness. Even though they're not aware of it, avoidant grievers actively control their mental state so that spontaneous thoughts of loss do not enter their consciousness. This kind of tailoring of mind wandering likely exhausts mental energy and leads to time periods when the thoughts actually do break through. It is like an ineffective pop-up blocker that runs in the background of your computer. You might not be aware that it's there, but it slows down the overall operating speed and eventually breaks down and the pop-ups get through. Outside of our consciousness, <clears throat> outside of our conscious awareness, we are constantly editing our own mental experiences to control what does and does not get it. And this process of editing is not always helpful. Researchers suggest that one treatment goal for avoiding grievers may be to relax the conscious and unconscious mental controls that they maintain over their thinking of the loss. Since the control and monitoring happens outside of conscious awareness, this would be challenging to do. The training in mindfulness and acceptance may help some people relax both their conscious and unconscious mental control. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dr. Fujan Zane, and I have Christy Huckstead with me. She is the author of Be You Only Better Real Life Self Care for Young Adults 
than everyone else. And two other books. Um, she's a certified grief recovery specialist and a grief and loss facilitator for addicts in recovery. She's also the host of the Grief Girl podcast. Welcome to my show, Christy. Thank you so much for having me. It is so nice to have you. Thank you so much for your wonderful book. As I was going through, uh, through it, I also um, saw that partly uh, how you started to go, you know, become a facilitator is because you actually had to go through a lot of the process of grief. So could you share with us um, how was it for you and what is it that brought you into writing this book? You wrote that when you used exactly what you wrote in the book on yourself to support yourself through the process. Yes. Well, eight years ago, my husband died by suicide. He ran in front of a train in Dana Point, California, where we lived. And to add to the trauma, his father was a passenger on the train he ran in front of. So I was really struggling after that. I didn't know how to process my grief. So it was a long, hard journey. And there, I reached a point in my grief journey where I thought, you know, you have two choices here. You can either be a victim of what's happened to you, or you can take what you have learned and you can use that to help other people. So I decided I didn't want anybody else to have to go through what I was going through. I didn't have tools. I didn't have the knowledge. I didn't know the warning signs and risk factors of depression and suicide. So I became very passionate about educating people about those warning signs and risk factors to prevent suicide. And then I realized, you know, my husband was 54 years old and he'd already bought into the stigma of mental illness. It was really a difficult situation to try to change somebody who's already stigmatized. So then I thought, you know, really what needs to change is we need to start education with our youth and they need to grow up in a world where mental health is as normal as physical health. Mm -hmm. If we can teach our young people what those warning signs are of suicide and depression, and then they will reach out at an early age to get the help that they need that's really become my goal to this day. I love it. I love what yeah, what I hear from you, Christy. One of the highest levels of uh, depression and suicide is in the youth, the last years of high school and the first two years of college and university. We did um, a study, actually, I created a model and we created uh, had a study in Cal State Long Beach and we're creating courses now in different places in order to um, really look at what's going on. And right after COVID, um, not after, right in the middle of COVID, we're having higher levels of depression and suicide in that age. So I am so grateful um, for you to um, looking into this matter and really focusing on, uh, on the youth. Because like you said, um, the signs of depression are there and there are areas and phases of life 
that we have, such as your husband's also the stage of life for him is the highest level of suicide, but people also go through phase of life depression. And sometimes if there is a confusion about this is just the phase of life that I'm going through, that I'm going to figure out life. And if I don't have support uh, from outside to support me to figure this out, it can really go south. It, I can get stuck in that position and not be able to move forward. Uh, or that it's really a chemical clinical depression um, that I need to you know, have other ways of handling such as you know, different methodologies, whether it's medication or uh, transcranial you know, stimulation or any other thing. Um, or is it that it's really um, the way of thinking and the way that I was raised and traumas so uh, assessing that and then supporting and getting help is one of the key, key factors that I hear that you're looking at going and opening yourself up and sharing and letting people know that it's okay, we can, we can seek help. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to accomplish by writing all these books on self-care and grief and and you know what to do, where to go, risk factors. But the big underlying problem is the stigma. And it's really tough. And I, I run into that every day. You know, I mean, people, uh, you know, to give you an example at Bill's Memorial, it was, I tried to make it a celebration of life, but the people that attended were so uncomfortable. They didn't know what to say to me. A lot of people avoided me. A lot of people still avoid me to this day because it's uncomfortable for them. If Bill had died of uh, cancer, <laughs> they, would react, they would react towards me completely differently. I would have gotten the hugs. I would have gotten the phone calls. And instead, because a lot of people in this day and age buy into that stigma, people are uncomfortable they don't know what to do they don't know what to say so they stay away and they do nothing so that's kind of the underlying problem is to start conversations and abolish that stigma so people like my husband will feel like it's okay to reach out and get the help they need um when uh you were going living with someone who had the depression in that format how did you see uh, the stigma stopping them from getting help? Did you know that uh, he had depression? Would he listen to you? Or you, had, uh, you really didn't know at that time either? Well, he had been battling depression for about a year before his suicide. And in his mind, he was a burden to me. He really was in no place emotionally to make appointments or try to get professional help on his own. That was too overwhelming. That would have never happened. So I understood that he was in a very dark place. I made appointments with psychiatrists, psychologists, church counselors, social workers, and we went from appointment to appointment. He got different medications layered one on top of each other. So I was on a mission to find that right doctor, that right professional, that right magic pill that would bring back my husband to the way he was when I married him. But mm -hmm. as far as Bill actually being able to help himself, he, he couldn't have. 
he had all he could do to get out of bed and maybe take a shower or eat something. So people really need to understand if you have a loved one in your life, you need to be their voice. Make the appointments, take them, sit with them. Also, let them know you're there for them in the long run. And that's something I didn't do. I was in such uh, the mindset, I just want to fix him. <laughs> because a lot of us women are all about fixing, right? And instead of just sitting next to him and saying, you know what, Bill, you are not a burden to me. I love you. I am here for you. We are going to get through this together no matter how long it takes. So people with depression, more than anything, need that reassurance from their loved ones that you are there for them no matter what. Mm -hmm. There's also, um, uh, I know Dr. Michael Yapko wrote a book that depression is contagious. Have you also experienced uh, being um, beside your husband and uh, there was a part that you wanted him to support you, that you wanted to support him. You wanted to have his engagements, conversations, you know, all of that. And how was it for you uh, to be beside someone who is going through such a deep clinical depression uh, beside you? And maybe if you could share that, that people in our audience who are listening and, and, and also like feeling that, yes, they do have a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, someone who they're living and very close to. And like you said, no matter what they do, they can't get out. But how is it also on you? Not only how you work for him, but the impact on you as someone who's beside someone who has the depression. I really was in panic mode for about a year. I was running on adrenaline. I knew that it was up to me to find him the help that he needed. So I didn't really set, sit still enough to really process what was happening because for most of us, when we're in it, we don't even realize how stressed and how our anxiety levels are through the roof because we are so fixated on helping our loved ones that we don't even realize the toll that it's taking on us personally. Yes. And how was it for you um, when he committed suicide? Because I think that uh, what I've also experienced with a lot of my clients as I um, you know, work with them for the past 30 years, it's a lot of uh, feeling of guilt, uh, feeling of uh, what else could I have done? How could I have prevented it? Uh, it's a very different experience than a natural, a natural cause death. Uh, somehow we're always thinking that we should have intervened somehow. And the same way you say that we should intervene at the stage of life, which is their depression, how does this same concept of I should have intervened stayed with you after he uh, committed suicide? The very first emotion that I felt was guilt. I wasn't in shock. I wasn't in denial. I had been dealing this with this for over a year. He talked constantly about not wanting to live, about taking his life uh, on a daily basis. So I didn't ever really think that he would follow through. I thought maybe it was just a cry for attention, but 
when I got that first phone call telling me that Bill had taken his life, my initial reaction was guilt. What could I have done differently? I didn't find him that right professional. I didn't get him that magic pill. I failed him. I didn't contact the right doctors. So I blamed myself. I took 100% responsibility for his death. And it took me quite some time to move past that. So yeah, I, I was pretty textbook. I, I, uh, I assumed all the guilt myself. I remember I want to share this story with you and everyone. Um, I remember working in an inpatient um, recovery and um, inpatient hospitalization, which we had a lot of suicidal clients where the family, um, you know, had uh, called and they they wanted to see them. So we were a locked unit and we were taking, and it was a huge team of three psychiatrists and all of us therapists and, you know, uh, the psychology nurses, and we would do this teamwork. And then we had this uh, one lady who was with us for almost six weeks. And we worked through the whole gamut. Everybody said, you know, they're going to write off on her. It was all great. She, uh, her sister got her a cat. So her sister was involved with her. We already got everything that when she, after all of these attempts, that she was in a very solid place as she was going to go. So we discharged her. And at that time I was in Northern California. She went into onto the bridge and threw herself out right after. And I remember all of us professionals were sitting there going, what happened? Like we thought the thinking was going well. We thought everything was going well. And at one point, Christy, um, we all had to come to a place of, we just need to respect the person's decision. And I know for many years, I worked with suicidal clients, which, you know, by three o'clock in the morning, I'm still having them go to the hospital and be assessed and, you know, do all of that. So I totally get when you say the first thing is for us to feel guilty. And then yet it's, it's their decision. We did all that we can for someone, but it's their life and it's their decision and honor them for who they are. And I think that might also take away the concept of the stigma off of someone, not only the person, but also the family members of someone who decided to commit suicide. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think in my case, I'm speaking personally, I think that Bill had made that decision long ago. I also think that during his depression, he could step up and be the great pretender. He, his parents came to visit and he could, he was very quiet, but he could engage socially, at least put up a front, very little communication, but he would go through the motions of being okay. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that they can sometimes step up and be the great pretender when they have to, if it serves them. Mm -hmm. I also think, you know, he went along grudgingly to a lot of these appointments with psychiatrists and psychologists. I would have to coax him to get in the car. I would go and fill a prescription. And it almost seemed like he had a sense of calm about him. Like he was just kind of 
appeasing me and going along with it because he knew how hard I was trying. So it's really hard for those of us, uh, those of us with a healthy mind to understand how dark of a place somebody is actually in that has that type of depression that they no longer want to be here, that all they want to do is end the pain. And the only way that they can think that will stop that pain is to take their own lives. We can't imagine that. And when I think back of the darkness and that deep pain he must have been in, there's a part of me that kind of understands, Absolutely. right? I mean, Absolutely. if we are in that kind of physical pain, the quality of life is zero. And, and that's temporary, you know? Um, so to have that kind of ongoing emotional pain and trauma day in and day out, I can't even fathom that. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, for many years, um, as I worked with the, with suicidal patients, I remember just sitting and listening and going to, you know, to the depth of their kind of like darkness that they're sitting. And I, going into their world, I could totally understand that they just wanted this to end. And there was no hope, there was no light. And it was very, you know, I mean, my job is to create light. And sometimes you kept sitting there and you're like, I don't know how to anymore. And um, sometimes it's just waiting and buying time. Sometimes we're just buying time until something changes. Another level of passion shows up. But I think that sometimes they are in a hopeless, helpless place. And sometimes us around them, whether we're the doctors or physicians or mates or you know, family members. Sometimes we also go into the same type of powerlessness and hopelessness with them because that is that is the actual concept of a depression, that de you know, the hopelessness and the powerlessness. So, um, but the other side of it is, as I hear you, and I've also experienced this, maybe if we could intervene early enough that we could shift something. And and that's what your book is about, is for each person to really look at, if I'm going through something, how can I find help? How can I support myself? And then for people who are around me, one of the um, uh, great uh, tools that you offer in your book is journaling. Um, how did journaling help you? That is the very first self-care tool that I put into action. I was told, I, I, I got professional help after his death because I had no idea how to process my grief. And we all hear, oh, writing things down really helps you. And you, you hear it, but until you actually do it and experience what it does for you, you don't understand. So I just started writing, actually I was putting my anger down on paper. And it, it needed a place to go. I needed to get that out. I needed to validate that it was okay that I was feeling that way. And what was really interesting is after about six months, I would journal every day. The interesting thing is, and even to this day, when I would start over and start from day one, it was really insightful because I was able to realize, you know what, you are moving forward in your grief journey. 
you no longer have all that anger. You go back and forth. I mean, it's still a roller coaster ride, but you are not in that deep, dark place that you were in on page one. So it also kind of gives you a little roadmap of where you're at in your grief journey, but it really serves as a place to put down your emotions and validate that it's okay to feel that way. Yes, and you brought a lot of the scientific um, aspect of journaling. My experience also has been that sometimes when we just think, we go around a loop. You know, we do the circular thinking and we don't really necessarily release anything. And uh, journaling allows us to release um, very quickly about, you know, and you brought uh, a lot of the scientific aspects of, you know, what it does in the brain and how, you know, it brings the two aspects of the brain together. But you just mentioned something that I think is fantastic, which is people in the emotional process, most of the time don't know how they're moving ahead. It's as if, you know, you're in a dark tunnel and all you see is darkness. And sometimes in the therapy, I have to remind them that, no, you're moving this far. You are, you know, these are some of the things that are different between what you said last week and this week. Um, Although in their world, they're just repeating the same thing over and over again. But if you are journaling, you could see the movement of what you had shared a week ago and two weeks ago versus today, even though it might be about the same concept, but the way you say it, the way maybe the, the energies are lifting, um, they're becoming lighter. And each one of those would also show you that you are going you know, from the darkness of the tunnel and there is a light and you're getting closer to the light that is out there. Well, in the beginning too, the first couple of weeks, I didn't go anywhere. I I couldn't imagine getting in my car and driving to the grocery store. That would just have been too overwhelming. So as I was processing my grief and moving forward slowly, I, I actually started engaging in my life again. And initially I couldn't imagine, you know, I had all I could do to take a shower or go make a cup of coffee. So, uh, you know, I, I now realize that that's okay. I should have been a little more gentle on myself and allowed myself that luxury of, you know, it's okay. You have been through a major trauma. So lower your expectations of yourself right now. You know, start from where you're at and take baby steps because this is a journey. Yes. And it's going to take some time. Yes. You talk about sleep. It's so important because I do agree uh, that um, most of the people that I've worked with also going through trauma, especially also losing someone, their sleep pattern uh, really goes off. So you see people who don't want to face the reality and they would just go to sleep hours after hours and um, and then they go through an insomnia. And then I, I've worked with people who immediately go into insomnia and uh, they have ir- irregular sleep and they they're can't process well when you can't sleep that way. Can you share a bit? Uh, you brought that also into your book and how um, much this is important on how to do that. Well, sleep is probably the most important self-care tool that there is because you and I both know that if you don't get a good night's sleep, 
The next day you have brain fog. That's when you get in little fender benders. You can't find your keys. You make mistakes. You miss appointments. So it affects, it affects your entire life. And you're also a lot more emotional. Those are the times when you are sleep deprived, where you blow up over absolutely nothing. <laughs> or you start crying at a commercial on TV. I mean, you are not yourself when you don't get adequate sleep. And, you know, after about 48 hours, you actually can start to hallucinate. So you are not yourself when you are sleep deprived. So it's so important to make sure because you're already going through all this trauma and this grief, and it's only going to be compounded if you do not get adequate sleep. So that is so important. You also talk about um, in being in nature and enjoying um, and kind of healing through nature. I know many people who um, had to leave their home in the time of grief and just um, go out of country or go to another space where it was a different space than uh, the same home that they had their loved ones there and they had to go through uh, a visual uh, constant trauma. Um, how was that for you? Did you need to live in the same place, move, move away? Um, and how did like, you know, kind of like uh, movement and nature and all of that support you? Well, that's a really good question because I live up on a bluff and all throughout the day, I hear train whistles. And since Bill died by train, that was such a, a huge trigger for me that I, whenever I would hear the train whistle, I got so anxious and I would all, I would just stop and I, I couldn't function. So I thought I've got to move. I can't be here. I can actually from my place, see the train tracks where he died. So that compounded with the actual train whistles. I thought I need to move somewhere where there are no train tracks, no trains, so I don't hear the train whistles. And when I thought about it, I thought, well, where in the world would that be? I don't know that unless I move, you know, in a really remote area, I think that would be really almost impossible for me to do. So then I realized, you know, I've got to start changing the way I think about this. I have control over my thoughts. And instead of thinking of that train whistle and as a trigger and a reminder of how Bill died, I decided that I would think of that as Bill's way of greeting me and saying hello. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It works. I hear train whistles all day. I live in the same place. And I, of course, could never drive by the place on the tracks where he died. I, I couldn't do that for a year. And now I realize, you know, it's okay. Yes, he did die there, but, you know, you can't go around the world to try to avoid this area. You need to drive that route. So I just don't look and I turn the radio on and I distract myself, but I don't try to avoid those triggers anymore. Mm. Um, I didn't move, but it started with changing the way that I think. 
And that started up with whenever I see triggers, I'll see Bill's car, the car that he drove, this red and white or black and white FJ Cruiser. And I'll see this big guy behind the wheel. And the first time I saw that, I stopped, I slammed on the brakes and it stopped me dead in my tracks. And now I, I think that person behind the wheel reminds me of Bill and it brings a smile to my face. So you have to stop and think, I'm going to change the way that I think about this. It's and like, yes, it's almost like everything that would remind me of him, instead of going to the sad place, I'm going to let them, let all of these triggers to remind me of the beauty of him. Yes, and then I have so many happy, happy memories. And I remember being down at the beach and I saw somebody walking towards me that was dressed and looked exactly like him. And I just stopped. And of course he was approaching me and I was just staring at him and he said, are you okay? And instead of, you know, running away or acting all flustered, I just said, you know what? I, you just caught me off guard because you remind me so much of my Mm ex-husband. And he said, well, tell me about him. And he walked with me and he listened to my story. And he lives in my neighborhood and now we're friends. So, you know, uh, there is beauty in these moments and you just have to turn the situations around and look at it a little bit differently. Very much. You talked about cutting down on sugar. Say more about that. (laughs) Well, uh, my book, when I started out, as we discussed, I wanted it to be mainly for self-care for young adults. I'm also a credentialed teacher, health teacher, and young adults, teens, we all hear, you need to eat healthy, eat from the four food groups, eat more leafy green vegetables, more fruit, add fiber. We've heard this time and time again. So I decided instead of that, let's start out with the most important thing. Just cut back on your sugar. If if you're eating healthy and you're drinking eight cans of Coke a day, you're not healthy right? So let's make this simple and just start with the number one culprit in your diet, which is sugar. So if you can cut back on that, then you're going to be able to have a healthy, nutritious, balanced diet. Christy, when I was in high school, I think for a couple of months, I was drinking 16 cans of Cokes plus 16 (laughs) cans of Coke And, um, and I think chocolate bars with it. Wow. Well, did you notice, I don't know if you saw in the sugar chapter, I break down exactly what is in one can of Coke or cola, 10 teaspoons of sugar. And what happens when you consume that large amount of sugar is you get that little sugar high, but then after 20 minutes and an hour, you crash and then you need another can of Coke. So if you were having 16 cans you had a huge sugar addiction and you kept consuming it to get that sugar high. And then you kept crashing. Yes. That is so unhealthy. (laughs) I still have the addiction. I'm just monitoring it because I don't think that addiction when it develops, it goes away. So it's just constant monitoring that type of, you know, sugar needs. So it is so important that, um, you know, for parents to actually create a diet which has a little bit more balance and 
to be, you know, for their teens and young adults to really know that. And uh, well, young adults also start with alcohol, which has, again, high levels of sugar in there. So that's such an important factor to be uh, mindful of. Well, absolutely. That's why at the end of that sugar chapter, I have a sugar log because the first step in cutting back is to be aware. You know, if you had filled out that log and you calculated uh, 160 teaspoons of sugar a day, plus the sugar addiction was compounding itself. So you were having candy bars. I think that would have probably shocked you. So I make the reader responsible for logging and figuring out how much sugar are you actually consuming? Let's learn to read labels and let's, let's take a real close look here. Yes. You also go um, in your book and go, explain different aspects such as how to maintain relationships, healthy relationships, managing your money. You created a, a budget worksheet. Um, and then, um, you know, then you go into um, a, a place of attitude. So what I like also about your book is very hands-on. You give specific skills and the shift of attitude at the end about, you know, how to be grateful, but how to be mindful, how to install hope, how to have the vision and move forward. Um, so it really, really gives the young adult not only a practical tool, but also in how to shift their mind and their brain and uh, and their body um, into and uh, you know reaching an optimum health, and uh, and to me is almost like if I can be responsible for myself and have the skills to be responsible for me, then um, then I can I can see um, if there is anything going on with me that is not up to par, then I can get help. So it's more like. Let me be responsible and do these skills. If by me doing all of that, there's still something going on that I cannot handle by myself, I need to get help. Well, yes, and I and at the second half of each chapter in the book, I I give the science behind why the self-care tool works because I think it's important. Most people are pretty black and white. They want to know why I'm asking you to do this. What is this going to do for me? Mm -hmm. So it's actually going to change your brain chemistry. So that's incentive for people to actually do these, follow through on these self-care tools. Mm -hmm. If it raises those feel-good hormones in your brain, those neurochemicals, the dopamine, the serotonin, the oxytocin, it, if those neurochemicals are raised, you're going to feel better and you're going to be in a better mood. You're going to be of more benefit to others. So um, I think the main thing about all this self-care is it changes your brain chemistry. And that's what you need to, to ward off depression, right? So if you keep your brain healthy, it will help ward off depression so that you don't get those suicidal thoughts, so that you, your self-confidence and your self-esteem stay high and elevated where they should be. So it's not just, you know, me telling you to take care of yourself and here's how to do it. I also wanna give you the science behind why it works. And that hopefully will help you not get to a state where you really need professional help. So it's all about prevention. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So you said um, at the beginning of the book that you utilized every step that you've actually put in here for yourself and you've watched yourself come and heal from the grief. So how are you now? And what brought you and what it, what was the per, uh, process? I know we talked about right after the trauma and you know what you had gone through your grief and what were the process of you coming to your healing? I'm at the point right now where I've accepted my loss. It's a part of me. I used to want to detach from it and, and get away from it and, and move on with my life without the trauma. But now I realize you can't do that. That's not going to work. So the, the best thing to do is embrace what's happened. And it's a part of you. It always will be. And move forward and take your tragedy with you because your grief changes and evolves. And it's okay that that's now a part of your new normal. So I'm at the place where I've accepted it. I stopped blaming myself. I stopped feeling guilty. I, but it, it, it came from the process of understanding what mental illness is really all about. And when you don't understand what that process is, you own it and you take it personally. And that was a big part of my journey. So I'm at the place right now where I feel like I've learned and grown from my grief and my trauma. I'm a lot more compassionate. I have a lot more empathy. I do grief counseling. I talk to people mainly who have experienced a suicide because I'm not afraid of it. You know, I've been there. I understand. So I think I am now at a place where I'm a better person because of my experience. In one minute, if there's anything we haven't shared, then you really want our viewers and audience to. I, I think the main thing is, you know, a lot of people think that self-care is selfish and it's not. It, you need to take care of yourself, put yourself first emotionally, spiritually, socially, financially, mentally, before you can really reach out and be of service and help other people. So just like they tell you on the airplane, put your own oxygen mask on first before you can help other people. And that's true in life. Christy Huxtad, everyone, be you only better real life self-care for young adults and everyone else and find that in um, Amazon. Where can they find you, Christy? The best place to find my stories and blogs and all my books is at my website at thegriefgirl.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you so much for having me. Take good care. And for all of you who are out there, create an amazing life for yourself and everyone around you. Until next week, bye.